Good morning. Good morning to all those gathering online with us as well. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. And this morning we are in continuing our series, which we're entitling God's Big Picture. And the title of our message is God's Big Picture, the Prophesied Kingdom. God's Big Picture, the Prophesied Kingdom. Before we start, let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would speak to us by your spirit, that your spirit would convict us this morning of our sin, lead us to repentance, and lead us to a deeper understanding of what Jesus has done and the free and full mercy and forgiveness that he offers. May we see him more clearly, worship him, and know his love. I ask in his name. Amen. Two legendary football coaches uh, recently ended their tenures with the teams that made them famous. Nick Saban was the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide from 2007 to 2023. And during his time at Alabama, he won uh, seven national championships, the most of any coach in college football history. Bill Belichick was the head coach of the New England Patriots from 2000 to 2023. And during his tenure, he won a record six Super Bowls and also made nine trips to the Super Bowl in all. Love them or hate them, and I'm sure there are a few of you here this morning who love to hate both of these coaches. These two men led their teams to years of unprecedented success. It's inarguable. These coaches set the tone. They recruited or they drafted uh, excellent talent. They cultivated cultures of excellence and an expectation of winning. It's not true in every circumstance, but in most cases it is true that as the coach goes, so goes the team. There's a reason when a team is struggling that management, the players, and the fans all want the head of whom? They want the head of the coach on a platter. You are not delivering the wins. You are now going to be fired. The success or a failure of a team rests in large part upon the coach. As the coach goes, so goes the team. Now we see a similar dynamic with the people of God in the Old Testament. Kings function as head coaches, the head coaches of the people of Israel, if you will. The kings represent God's rule over the people. They were expected to know the law of God and to rule and shepherd God's people according to that law. And if they did so, the people would flourish. But if the kings disobeyed and they led the people into disobedience, not only would they be judged, would they fail, the people would be judged and suffer as well. In Israel, as the king goes, so goes the people. Today we're going to see how this role of king as the representative of the people plays out in the life of Israel. We're also going to learn about the particular role that prophets played in this dynamic. Prophets were God's mouthpieces. They were God's spokespeople. They would go to the kings and they would call the kings if they were breaking God's law to to obey the covenant, to turn, to repent. They would speak warnings to them and they would also speak hope to them that if you repent, God will turn from his wrath against you and he will extend mercy to you. These prophets were God's mouthpieces calling the king and the people to repentance, putting before them a pathway of blessing, but also warning of curses if they disobeyed. We left off last week with David in 2 Samuel 7. David in that chapter received this amazing promise that God said to him, I'm going to build you a house, and in this house, I'm going to give you sons, a lineage of kings that will last forever. 
God made this amazing promise to him. Then in 2 Samuel 8 through 10, we see that David had all of these domestic and military successes. He is flying high. He is succeeding in every way as the king. And the people, as a result, are flourishing under his leadership. But sadly, David's uh, obedience and the blessings that flowed from it, they were short-lived. David, God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart, he takes a mighty tumble in 2 Samuel 11. In this chapter, we read of David's adultery with Bathsheba. And this Bathsheba was the wife of one of his most, fav, uh, most faithful soldiers who fought for him, a man named Uriah the Hittite. And through this adulterous relationship, Bathsheba conceives, and David, through nonviolent means, tries to cover up his sin. He realizes people are going to find out I've had this affair. And when he cannot accomplish these things in a nonviolent way, he ultimately covers up his sin by sending Uriah the Hittite out into battle and then having all the soldiers pull back from him so that Uriah will be murdered at the hands of David's enemies. And this brings us to chapter 12. In our passage, Nathan the prophet speaks to on God's behalf. Nathan confronts David with his sin and he tells David that this sin has been seen by God and it will not go unpunished. And this sin that will not only impact David's life, it will impact the lives of all those around him and including the entire nation of Israel. As the king goes, so goes the people. David had wandered from God, and so God sent a prophet to him to call the king to repent and return to God so that God might forgive him and bless him and bless the people as well. So Nathan begins his confrontation of the king with a parable. This is point number one, the parable. Nathan's use of a parable to approach the king was wise on a couple of levels. First, although he's a prophet and he's sent by God, Nathan knew that David was still the king. David's an absolute monarch who has the power of the sword. And multiple times throughout the scriptures, prophets will go and try and speak truth to the king. And often the kings will punish these prophets, sometimes even putting these prophets to death. So Nathan backs into what is going to be a pretty strong rebuke by using a parable. He's also wise in the selection of the content. David, after all, was a shepherd. So Nathan appeals to David's heart for sheep. And Nathan lays it on pretty thick. He makes it sure to tug all of the heartstrings of the king so that the king will be really angry and will be primed for his correction. Look with me with, at what Nathan says here in 12.1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, the story is pretty melodramatic, but listen to it. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler uh, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, when you first read this, at least when I did, it feels a bit over the top. It's like Hallmark television for shepherds or something, you know. <laughs> Yui the ewe lamb. And you can picture him frolicking in the fields with 
the father and all of the children and then Yui at the table eating of the morsel in the cup and, and uh, you know, sitting down next to them watching television afterwards, eating popcorn from the hand of his master. And then suddenly this bad man comes along and he takes away the you and the next scene that you see is this evil man eating lamb chops like, ah, ha, 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 you know, eating Yui the you and then rest in peace, Yui the you. 994 to 991 BC, you know, and this is the end of this horrible, tear-jerking, dramatic moment. I have no idea whether lambs actually ate from the plate or drank from the cup of their shepherds or whether shepherds ever thought of their ewes as like daughters to them. But this imagery, which is meant to evoke or to, to, to draw out the emotions of David, it certainly did the trick. David knew well the love and affection a shepherd would have for his sheep. He also knew his role as the king, that he was called to shepherd the people of Israel. And so Nathan plays off of David's heart his love for the sheep, and he, and he appeals to the king's sense of justice, which David displays in full force. So after hearing this story of the callous rich man who steals this poor man's beloved sheep and slaughters it to feed his friends, David is incensed. And this is what he said. Look with me, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he had done this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan, having laid the trap, he's now getting ready to spring the trap, which is... Point number two, rebuke and judgment. David, angry, says all these things. This guy ought to be judged. And then Nathan turns to him. Look with me, verses 7 through 9. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is about you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So having gotten David's blood up, Nathan turns to the king And he turns all of that righteous indignation that David just had and he turns it on David and says, you are the man. And then Nathan enumerates all the blessings that God had poured out on David. David, God called you. You were a lowly shepherd. No one even thought you were worthy to be talked to by Samuel. They went through all their brothers and finally there's one left. David, go get him. And sure enough, that is the one that God anointed as king. And then God had saved him from Saul. Saul had threatened his life for years and David had been running and hiding and God had preserved him and ultimately gave him the kingdom that he promised. God had given him the kingdom of Israel and Judah and defeated all of the enemies of God that surrounded him. God had given him wealth. God had given him wives. And if David wanted more, God said he would have given him more, whatever he wanted. But in the end, all that David wanted was the one thing that he could not have another man's wife. So David's lust led him to despise the word of the Lord, despise this God who had been kind to him and who had loved him, and to embrace his adulterous and his murderous desires. 
And when his sins revealed themselves through Bathsheba's pregnancy, David murdered one of his most faithful military men by having him abandoned. He plays off the man's courage, the courage of the man who's going to be at the front. And when he's at the front, he tells him, pull back all the other men so that he's alone and he dies. He uses the man's courage and his loyalty as the means to murder him. And having confronted David's sin, Nathan then pronounced judgment on David for his sins. Look at me at verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Because of David's sin, God ultimately raises up his son Absalom. And Absalom brings about a coup where he overthrows his father. David is forced out of the city. Then Absalom takes his father's wives and he, he has relations with them in a very public way, demonstrating that he is now the king who has the wives of the former king. And what David had done in secret, Absalom does in a very public way, shaming and disgracing the former king. The sin was severe, as was David's punishment. But I want you to note something about this punishment. The punishment didn't only impact David. It impacted the whole nation. David's sin leading his son to his son's betrayal, it brought all kinds of infighting inside the people of Israel. There were wars that were fought between these competing kings and generals. People died throughout the country all because of David's sin and the infighting that that brought the sword, that that brought to his family. And we even see in verse 14 that David's punishment extended to his unborn son, whom God would take from him as punishment for his sin. As the king goes, so goes the people. David's obedience brought great prosperity and blessing to himself and to the people. In the same way, his sin brought pain and suffering and death to his own family and ultimately to the people of God. Yet even as heinous as David's sin was, God still had mercy on a repentant David. Point number three, David's repentance. Look with me at 13 through 15. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. In these verses we see God's faithfulness to his promises, the promises that he had spoken to him just a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 7. When he was speaking of these, this Davidic line, these kings, he says this in 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. <clears throat> when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before him. Yes, David experienced some profound human suffering as a result of his sin. He experienced the rod of God's discipline. It was a painful discipline indeed, one that in many ways it continued for the rest of his life. 
But because David humbled himself, God forgave him. God in his mercy forgave David and spared his life. The reality is, according to God's law, if you commit adultery or you murder, and David committed both, both of those were punishable by death. But when David asked for forgiveness, he asked for God's mercy, God spared his life. Even in the face of egregious sins, God did not withdraw his steadfast love from David. He loved him and he forgave him. Now, before we unfold how this story connects to God's big picture, which it does, it's worth pausing here to ask what this passage might have to say to each and every one of us. Although God no longer speaks to us through prophets, God's spirit does continue to speak through his word in the Bible. So the question is, what is God saying to you? David's prosperity and success, they had lulled him to sleep. His power led him to believe that he was free to do whatever he wanted without consequence. But he was sorely mistaken. Are there any areas where you are sinning against God in a flagrant way, believing that in some sense God is either indifferent to your sin, doesn't see your sin, doesn't care about your sin? But friends, even if you are hiding this sin... And others can't see this sin. God sees this sin. God knows our hearts more than likely we even know them ourselves. God isn't fooled. God will not be mocked. When we sow sin, we will ultimately reap the consequences of that sin. Consequences that will likely not only impact our lives, but the lives of our family and those that we love the most. Are there any areas where you are sinning in this way? Are there any areas where you are experiencing God's conviction for your sin? Are you embracing that conviction? Do you see that conviction is from God? It's a gift to you. He's trying to pull you off a pathway leading to death and put you back on a pathway leading to life and blessing. Are you embracing God's conviction? Ultimately, God loves us too much to let us continue in our sins. And in the midst of that discipline, although painful in the moment, he promises that yes, he will discipline us for our sins, but he will never withdraw his steadfast love from us. Therefore, lean into God's conviction. Confess your sins to him freely and fully, just as David did. Now, we've already confessed our sins this morning, but there'll be a moment in a few minutes when we will be preparing ourselves to come to the Lord's table. You'll come and you'll get the elements. You'll go back to your seat and you will wait and you will consider what Christ has done. I encourage you to flip back to Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 that are in your bulletin. Those are both psalms that David wrote in light of his sins that he committed in this passage. They're a wonderful prompt for us to confess our sins and then to receive the assurance of God's pardon and then come to his table to receive his mercy and forgiveness. Our last point this morning is point number four, epilogue. So how does this tie to the big picture? So in this passage, we have David. He is the sweet psalmist of the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart, and yet he has stumbled profoundly. But then came his son, Solomon. For a time, Solomon seemed to be the king that they were waiting for. The king that the people needed under his reign, all of the promises of God that God had made to Abraham, they seemed to be on the cusp of being fulfilled. God's people, Israel, were dwelling in God's place, the promised land. 
And under Solomon, Israel, for the very first time, had possession and had peace from all their enemies. They had possession of the entire land and peace from all the enemies that surrounded them. God's people were in God's place. And they were under God's rule. They had a righteous king in Solomon. Solomon, the man that's considered the wisest man who ever lived, who's living and leading according to God's law. And the people are experiencing the abundance of God's blessing as a result. And God's people were experiencing God's blessing through his presence. So David wanted to build a temple, but Solomon built that temple. So the presence of God is permanently dwelling among God's people. And there are priests who are offering sacrifices, atoning for sins. So the people are at peace with God who's dwelling among them. They're at peace with one another. They have peace from all of their enemies that used to surround them. And God's people were even a blessing to the nations. There were other rulers from other nations that came and they were amazed at how God had blessed Solomon with wisdom and with wealth. All the promises made to Abraham seemed to be coming to fruition. But alas, Solomon's heart ultimately wandered from God. In order to establish diplomatic relationships with all these powerful kingdoms around, he intermarries with all these foreign wives, and these foreign wives bring their idols with them, and Solomon ultimately begins to worship some of these foreign gods, and his heart is turned away from God. So it seems like this peak comes crashing down, and after Solomon, things unravel quickly. The kingdom splits into two kingdoms. You have ten tribes that go north. The northern tribes immediately fall into idolatry. They never recover from it. There's not a single good king. Tons of prophets are sent to them calling them to repent. Warning of judgment. Please turn back. What you're doing is sinful. Do not do this. Ultimately, they continue to reject God and are defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now the southern kingdom is ruled by all of David's sons. They fared a little bit better, but honestly, not much. A few of the kings were good, but most of them were wicked. Moments of repentance followed by long periods of disobedience, and eventually the disobedience far outweighed any attempts at obedience. And again, prophets were sent, warning the kings, warning the people, if you do not repent, God will judge you. And just like the northern kingdom, ultimately the southern kingdom rejected God, and they were carried into exile by Babylon in 586 B.C. Even in exile in a foreign land, even in exile, the line of kings was unbroken. The sons of David kept coming. And even in exile, God did not abandon his people. His prophets continued to speak to them. He never failed to keep his promises to them. He never withdrew his steadfast love from them. Through his prophets, he continued to speak to them, calling them to embrace God's discipline, promising that one day God would bring them back to the land and ultimately that God would give them a new covenant that would be unbroken, one that would finally change their hearts and turn their hearts from sin and idolatry. One day they would know the fullness of all of God's blessings that had been promised. So eventually the people returned to the land, but the kingdom never attained its former glory. The Old Testament ends with a relatively ragtag group of people. They're clinging to their former glory. A a diminished people, they're awaiting a Messiah, a king who would bring with him a new covenant, who would rule in righteousness, who would obey the law. A king who would finally crush the head of the serpent that they had been waiting for. A king who would free them from the oppression of their enemies. A king who would bring to fruition all of the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. A king who would be their representative and who would finally lead the people into the blessings of God's 
righteousness. A righteous king. And as that king would go, so would go his people. And the story of that king and his kingdom is where we're going to pick up next week. I will pray for us. Father, thank you that you love us, that you do not leave us in our sins, that you love us so much that you pursue us, confront us with our sin, and as a loving Father, discipline us, and through that discipline, draw us back to you. Father, may we embrace that discipline as your kindness. May we confess our sins and receive your mercy and come back under the blessed rule of our King, King Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.